problems the food it's not the people there are just there's just too many calories in the products that were being um, sold so the Christmas BMJ season is upon us if you go to our website now you'll see it's been a bumpy year in the podcast we're going to bring you a select few of those articles We'll be looking at motherhood, trying to figure out what 17th century causes of death were, and, as it's Christmas, in this podcast we'll be looking at food. There are three research papers on food in this year's Christmas journal. The first is a huge study of the calorie content of food in different restaurants all around the world. In that, Susan Roberts and the other researchers have measured the size of meals provided and their calorie density. There's a fascinating infographic which shows you just how many of those single meals provide more than your full recommended daily intake of calories. The researchers have also explained how they go about measuring those calories in a video, The Science of a Calorimeter, so check that out. In this podcast, we're again looking at calories and restaurant food, but this time in the UK with an observational study. And we'll also be talking about an intervention tested over the festive period, which helps people avoid gaining weight in the first place. I'm joined by some of the authors of those studies and I'll let them introduce themselves. Frances, maybe you could start. Hi, I'm Frances Mason. I'm a PhD student at the University of Birmingham. And Amanda? Hi, I'm Amanda Daly. I'm Professor of Behavioural Medicine at Loughborough University. Welcome to the podcast. And uh, Eric? I'm Eric Robinson. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Liverpool. Great, thank you. Um, so we have two research papers that we're talking about today. Uh, Amanda and Frances, maybe for a start, you could just give me a, a quick explanation of what your research was. Um, okay, so we have looked at the effectiveness of a brief behavioural intervention designed to prevent weight gain over the Christmas holiday period. So we conducted a randomised control trial to look at the effectiveness of the intervention. Great, thank you. Um, and Eric, you've done some observational research. Yes, so um, we know that the number of calories that you eat in a day uh, will determine how much you weigh. And what we were interested in doing was examining the average number of calories um, in restaurant meals when you eat out in the UK. Great, thank you. So. Um, let's start uh, with your research, Francis and Amanda. Um, now, this was an intervention looking at weight gain over the Christmas holidays. And I was just wondering, you know, what's going on over Christmas? I know I definitely put on weight. Um, it's maybe a combination of uh, more calorific food and, and caring less about, you know, what I stick in my mouth. So, um, you know, what's 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 going on sort of calorific wise and, and behavioural wise at Christmas that, that makes it this kind of perfect storm of, of weight gain? So we know that um, each year the population on average does gain a smaller amount of weight. And from um, 
tracking studies we know that holidays such as Christmas and it's Christmas actually that's responsible for the majority of this annual weight gain um, and as you said it is a combination of factors so it's a prolonged period for overconsumption and increased sedentary behaviour. Um, Christmas isn't just a day it's a period of quite a prolonged period of time um, it's a break in routine it's more social occasions it's um, more of the availability of foods um, reduced physical activity so it is a combination of factors like you said that, that are all at play during this time which leads um, commonly to weight gain mm-hmm. of around up, up to a kilo and um, you pull out in your paper two sort of explanations for this um, around regulation and uh, habit forming. So um, could you explain, uh, Amanda maybe, could you explain what those are and how those relate to to what one eats? Yeah, so we wanted to base the intervention on some sort of theoretical thought and principles and we felt that self-regulation theory and habit formation model would be good principles. Um, so if I start with self-regulation, I mean, the idea of, this, of the study was really to encourage people to, to regulate what they were doing in terms of their eating and eating. And self-regulation theory seemed to be a good fit because we wanted people to monitor and to become self-aware um, through the process of self-weighing. Um, and that process is about you regulating what you do in terms of your behaviours, in terms of your eating and your lifestyle and the amount of physical activity um, that you're doing. Um, in relation to habit formation, I mean, part of the process of getting into uh, the habit and the, um, the process of weighing yourself regularly is that it becomes a habit. It's something that you get used to. It's a bit like, a good analogy is a bit like brushing your teeth you know we get into the habit of brushing our teeth every day we don't really think about it it's become a normal habitual thing that we do each day and so we wanted self-weighing to become a bit like that something that people do automatically uh, without thinking um, every day or certainly a couple of times um, a week so that's kind of why we've got self-regulation um, and, and the process of habits and so um how are those two interlinked do do does an intervention does something start off as sort of self-regulation and then segue into into habit how does that kind of link together yeah so essentially when you start you want something to become um regulatory so we get people to reflect and to think about the actions that they're doing so that they self-regulate it but obviously over time then we want it to become more habitual. So I guess the process of self-regulation becomes more habitual, less thinking about it and doing it automatically. But still within the habit, you're clearly still regulating um, your behaviours over over a period of time. So, to, yeah, again, a good analogy is like brushing your teeth. Great. Thank you. Um, now, as you said, you wanted to design the intervention around that. So what was your intervention? What was it that you were measuring here? Okay, so um, the intervention itself was um, obviously underpinned by self-regulation theory and the habit formation model, and we aim to really promote restraints of energy consumption. So how we thought we'd do that was by, uh, it was multi-component intervention. So firstly, we asked participants to weigh themselves regularly. And we specifically said, ideally, this would be every day, but as a minimum twice a week. 
Um, we also provided them with some weight management tips, which were based on some um, previous research, the 10 top tips by Lally and Co. And we slightly adapted these to make them seasonally appropriate. And then finally, we included some information about um, calorie content of commonly consumed festive foods and drinks and the corresponding energy expenditure associated with this amount of calories. So they, all these three things were designed to help um, promote restraint of eating and drinking during the period because that's the method by which we hypothesise the intervention would work and ultimately prevent weight gain. Thank you. Now, this is a study, so uh, you have to have um, a control, a comparison in there. So um, what was your comparison in this case? Yeah, so it was general healthy lifestyle advice. So it was. Um, it also included recommendations about um, not smoking, stopping smoking, um, increasing activity levels, um, just uh, general healthy lifestyle um, information. Um, now, as an aside, when you were talking about your uh, comparison there, you mentioned in the paper how little research has actually been done into this kind of thing. Um, how little research has looked at preventing weight gain rather than helping people lose weight once they've they've got there. Were you surprised by that too? Yeah, um, I mean, I think overall there's very little work in relation to preventing weight gain. Most of the evidence has been based around studies of helping people to lose weight and to keep weight off. But obviously, you know, we're quite interested in this notion of preventing um, weight gain. Um, and as far as we know, there has been no other study or no other trial of preventing weight gain um, over the Christmas period. So from that perspective, this is um, quite a unique study. Well, glad that uh, that you did it and published it in the BMJ. All right, so let's get into that. Uh, how did you carry out your research? Um, okay, so we set out to recruit participants aged 18 years and above, um, and we excluded those who were pregnant or breastfeeding or couldn't understand English sufficiently to provide informed consent. Um, we recruited our participants from local workplaces. Um, we also engaged with some schools who we had previously engaged with the University of Birmingham for research and we wrote out to the parents so we didn't recruit children obviously we recruited their parents and we also used um, social media to try and engage with our participants and recruit them that way. They were then invited to um, take part in screening where we screen them by telephone to see to make sure that they're appropriate and then they attended two appointments with a researcher at home or a convenient location. Um, Thank you and what kind of people were you able to recruit who uh, who joined the study? So we mainly recruited um, women, so 78% of our participants were female, um, the mean age was 44 years and um, mainly the BMI were in the overweight category. Um, I think those are the sort of key characteristics. Great, thank you. And obviously for all the details, uh, this is a properly reported RCT, so all that information is online for people to have a look at. Now, let's uh, let's jump in. Uh, how effective then was your intervention? Did you, did you find a, 
uh, a notable effect there? Uh, yeah, so we found, um, we looked at way to follow-up, that was our primary outcome, and we found that our intervention group, um, on average, weighed around half a kilo less than our comparators at follow-up. Uh, so it seems like there was an effect then. How does this fit in with the other literature that's out there? I mean, I think in terms of this study particularly, it's quite hard to fit it into the other literature because obviously we were focused on a very specific period um, in time and also there's been a lack of studies around um, prevention and actually some of the studies haven't been particularly effective um, certainly in children preventing weight gain in children haven't been so effective so i think it's actually quite a hard question to answer okay thank you now uh we, we'll d- talk a little bit about what this means in a second but i'd like to turn to uh eric um now, Eric, you your research, uh, observational research, was looking at um, the calories in restaurant food in the UK. What was it that made you want to look at this? Why did you think that was important to look at? I think one of the things that uh, motivated us was there's been a lot of uh, research and discussion about the ills of fast food. Um, but prior to our study, there'd been very little research examining the calorie content of food served in more traditional sit-down restaurants. So there was kind of a gap in the literature um, that hadn't been addressed before. Great, thank you. And why is it that food, calories and restaurant food uh, is important? Yeah, well, we're we're eating out uh, more often than we ever have done before. So an awful lot of the calories that we're consuming on a daily basis are coming from outside of the home. Uh, it doesn't matter where the calorie comes from if we end up in a situation where we're consuming more calories than our body needs then we'll gain weight um, and that's an unavoidable fact about uh, the way that energy and uh, body weight work together so you've decided to to look at this uh, i mean obviously it's not possible for for one group of researchers to look at all restaurants uh in the uk so so how did you decide um who it is that you would look at we made a uh, a decision to look at what we would what we classed as major chains so these are businesses in the uk who have 50 more 50 or more outlets so The decision to use 50 is somewhat arbitrary. There's no definition of what makes a major chain, but we we know that they that those collections of restaurants contribute to an awful lot of restaurants on the high street. And they also um, a very large number provide uh, online nutrition information as well that would allow us to to work out the number of calories in their meals. So a pretty pragmatic decision then. Yes, I think. you know, it wouldn't be possible to work out the number of calories in every single restaurant in the UK. So you have to draw the line somewhere um, to make the project feasible. And that's why we drew the line. Sure. How easy was it for you to actually get hold of that information that uh, that you used to, to come up with these these calorie counts? So by and large, the, the information is was provided by the restaurants on their web pages. So anybody could access the information. Um, it isn't provided on restaurant uh, menus uh, so much. That's very rare at the moment. Um, but yeah, we we got it from the restaurants themselves. Um, thank you. Now, uh, you also decided to look at main meals. Um, and this was a question that 
we've done quite a lot of stuff around food in the podcast this year. Um, and I didn't realise that there was a, a difficulty in deciding what actually constitutes a meal as opposed to a snack or or something else. Um, so for for the for your study, what did you define as as being a meal here? So we defined a meal as being a main meal dish. So when you look in a restaurant, there's a starter section on the menu often, there's a dessert section and there's a main section. So the meals that we've um, selected are the kind of meals that you'd find on that um, main section of a menu. Uh, so yeah, and you excluded things like tapas from that, which must would have made this a, a very difficult uh, study to do. Yeah, so we... We limited the study to meals that we could feel confident were being sold to one person. So with tapas, there's you know it's questionable how many tapas dishes does one uh, order when you go to a restaurant. There's no, there's not often not specific guidance on how many dishes you should order. So uh, we we didn't include those because we couldn't be sure. Sure, and of course, uh, if you're anything like me, then you end up just ordering more and more and more. Um, what you did do, though, which uh, was kind of fascinating, was look at all the potential combinations of um, of those main meals. And Nando's came out with an incredible number of potential combinations. Yes, Nando's came up with an awful lot of combinations. And that's because you can uh, choose about four or five different types of sauce or spice blend on your dish. And then you have to make a choice between... Um, various different sides as well and we um, decided from the outset that we whenever uh, whenever a meal uh, involves choice by the consumer then the fairest way to uh, represent that would be to include every single meal combination that a person could choose and so when we found there were about 9,000 combinations in Nando's that was um, not a very pleasant surprise because it uh, resorted in a lot more work but that's what we decided to do from the outset so we stuck to it sure and on that i mean obviously yeah nando's um, for people listening abroad it's uh, a place where you go and get chicken you can have a different combination of spice and sauce and whatever else uh, on it do things like that actually make a difference to um or substantial difference to the kind of calorie uh, intake well, they, it, I guess it depends how different the uh, the order is, but yeah, it can do. The choice of side that you have can obviously have a big impact, but also the choice of marinade can have um, a sizable impact. It could have up to 100 calories um, difference. So some of these, um, what might feel like re- relatively minor uh, differences on the menu actually add up to a significant number of calories. So I suppose this goes back to the main point of your research, which is looking at at how these calories add up, and they're not necessarily very easy to um, for people who are going into restaurants and ordering or, or whatever to actually uh, understand how much it is that they are consuming. Yeah, I think one of the the striking findings of the study is just the, the sheer number of calories in lots of these dishes, and I don't think many people uh, would accurately estimate the number of calories. I think a lot of them are incredibly surprising. 
So it is very difficult um, to know the number of calories without um, the information provided. Sure. So we'll get into that that uh, finding in a little bit. Um, but before that, you kind of you report um, in the study, and there's a good table for for people to have a look at all of this. Um, the mean number of calories in those main meals, the percentage of those meals in each restaurant which have under 600 calories, and the percentage of meals that have over a thousand. Now, why did you choose those two buckets under 600, over a thousand? Mm-hmm. So, the 600 uh, calorie um, category is because there is a public health recommendation that we should aim to consume around 600 calories. Uh, for a main meal like lunch or dinner. So that's the public health recommendation. So we're interested to know how many meals um, meet that recommendation. Then the other uh, cutoff that we used was a thousand calories or more. So there isn't any official um, cutoff or classification for what would be deemed an excessive number of calories. So that's something that we decided as a research team um, to use. And we thought it was justified because a thousand calories, if you imagine uh, the average woman, that's half of the number of calories that she's supposed to consume in an entire day in just the main course of a meal. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it does go to show the, how, how calorific some of these things in. So, uh, in this podcast, we're not going to restaurant shame anyone. If you want to eat in restaurants and check the calories, you can go online and uh, see exactly um, all the, the information that uh, Eric's gathered together there. But um, Eric, could you just give me a, an overall uh, top line on this? You know, wh- How are restaurants or how calorific is the food in restaurants? They're, they're, I mean, the, the take-home message is that it, they're extremely calorific. So the average number is the average number of calories is around a thousand calories. In terms of the number that meet the public health recommendation of six hundred calories or less, it was only nine percent of the meals that we sampled. So that's a really small fraction. And in terms of the number that exceed uh, that one thousand calorie cutoff uh, that we talked about. It was almost half of the the meals that we sampled. So the take home message is that there are an awful lot of calories being served to us, and awful lot of calories that we don't necessarily uh, realise that we're eating. Um, thank you. Now, uh, Amanda, I wanted to go back and talk to you at this point. Um, with your research, your your intervention was around, again, uh, regulation and habit forming. But I suppose this falls into the, the regulation thing. Do we know about calorie counting and how that actually helps or or not people um, either maintain their, their weight or, or lose weight? Yes, I mean, there are um, there are systematic reviews that have identified calorie counting as one of the, uh, the good things to do in terms of um, monitoring um, your weight. And that's essentially how, you know, Weight Watchers works in terms of um, helping people to monitor the amount of calories that they're taking. Um, and we know that Weight Watchers is an effective um, approach to weight management. So it seems that, you know, if you count your calories, then that can be a good thing. Because again, of course, it's about regulating. If you don't count, then you won't necessarily know how much intake um, you're consuming. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that rationale was behind rest the, the um, sorry, I'm going to start again. And that rationale was what led uh, legislation about um, 
putting the the calorie count on on restaurant foods that Eric you were able to use to to actually uh, look at this study. Um, but obviously, uh, you also mentioned that there are some guidelines about what constitutes um, or how many calories should be within a meal. Um, is there any sort of teeth to that uh, to those recommendations? Because it seems like a lot of these restaurants aren't aren't abiding by them. No, they don't, um, and very few restaurants are uh, providing meals that meet that. Uh, recommendation in any uh, great number so that it was only nine percent of all of the meals that we sampled would meet that recommendation. Great, thank you. Um, now in a, an editorial that runs alongside uh, a lot of the research uh, in the BMJ looking at food this week, um, Gene Adams from uh, Cambridge University talks about public health interventions, things that uh, can happen on a large scale to to try and help people um, decrease the amount of calories they they consume and therefore reduce obesity. Now, in that, she talks about um, what she defines as... Sorry, I'm just going to pull my notes up here. What she defines as low and high agency interventions. So low end agency are things that um, are very simple. That's statutory stuff that people don't have to make an individual choice uh, to do. High agency is much more, you know, going to Weight Watchers or, or joining a CrossFit gym or something like that. Things that require a lot of effort on behalf of people. So um, for, for both of your research here... Uh, Maybe Amanda, if I, Francis and Amanda, if I start with you, do you think um, your intervention, uh, weight, sorry, weighing yourself, uh, is that low or is that high uh, agency? How able do you think people are to do that? Um, I mean, I guess we would classify it as low agency. And I think the reason why we would say that is because actually in the study, people were able to regularly weigh themselves um, at least twice a week. So we know that the public can engage in this process of weighing themselves on a on a regular basis. And the study was set up to be a public health intervention that was low agency, that was low cost, that was simple, that was brief, that it would be easy strategies for the public to be able to um, actually implement and that was definitely the driving force in terms of actually planning and developing the intervention we were very clear this you know this was to be a low agency um intervention that we wanted you know public health england and the government to be able to encourage and promote as a public health intervention to the population thank you and uh, eric what about you do you how do you feel about uh, calorie counting in there well, I, I would class calorie counting as an uh, incredibly high agency because it involves a person having to learn and understand um, about calories. It involves them having to continuously monitor what they're doing, count the number of calories um, in every meal that they're having, record that information, look at that information and work out whether they're exceeding the number of calories um, that they've been eating. And it's not surprising that a lot of people don't do that in the general population. Great. So all of this is really me leading up to saying, um, you know, you, you've got uh, two things here. What do you think the lessons um, from your research are for for public health and, and for what we should be doing as a country to, to help people uh, manage their weight and, and reduce that kind of burden of obesity? 
So for me, um, the main message from the work that we're doing or the work that we've done is really um, that we're being served too many calories. So we can think about trying to motivate people to count calories, to weigh themselves frequently and so on and so forth. But if the environment that you're living in promotes excess calorie consumption and weight gain, then it's going to be very difficult to do that. So if you think about um, the research that we've done, what could happen in the new year is that there'll be a new policy that will involve restaurants having to put calorie information on their menus. So is that going to be effective as an intervention? Is that going to solve the obesity crisis? My feeling is that it won't because a lot of people won't care or won't be particularly motivated by calorie information. Even if you do care about calorie information, then unfortunately only about 9% of the meals meet that 600 calorie recommendation. So you don't have much to choose from. So what really needs to happen is the number of calories that are being served needs to be reduced. And if that could be made um, a reality, then that would likely be a very effective intervention because it wouldn't involve any agency on the part of the individual. And people would just be eating less by default. And Amanda Frontis, how about you? Do you, uh, well, do you have anything to, to add on what Eric said and, and what do you think about your research as well? So I'd like to sort of add something to what Eric um, talked about. I mean, I think it's important to have calories, but one of the things that was particularly salient in our study was that the public were very responsive to the idea of knowing what a calorie actually means in terms of physical activity, energy expenditure. They, they kind of got that. It, it was more of a meaning. And I think studies have shown that actually the public struggle to understand what a calorie really actually means for them. Um, of course, it's not an exact science, but I think if you can try and translate a calorie into something else in terms of physical activity, I think the public then can clearly see what the actual cost is in terms of um, physical activity for them. And maybe that will also encourage them to think differently about the foods that they choose to consume or um, to purchase. I think for um, us, what we do know is weight gain is common at Christmas time and that weight is not often subsequently lost fully. Um, what we didn't know was whether uh, an intervention we would manage to recruit anyone to take part in an intervention to prevent weight gain over Christmas. Um, Christmas is typically a time when people let their hair down and have a nice time and that usually involves consuming more um, food and drink and being less physically active. So we were quite unsure and because there's never been any um, trials targeted specifically at, during this time at weight gain prevention, we were really unsure if we'd managed to get anybody to take part in this study at all. So for us, we now know that possibly weight gain at Christmas isn't inevitable and that prevention is possible through following quite simple simple strategies that seem to be acceptable for people to undertake during this time. 85% um, of our participants weighed themselves at least twice a week. So that kind of showed us that people were responsive to these simple strategies to help control their weight during this um, this holiday period. I mean, obviously, you, you've made a case there for why it's important to um, weigh oneself and, and count calories uh, when it comes to, to controlling one's weight. Um, 
before this would be rolled out as a, a kind of, I don't know, public health intervention, uh, you also have to look at the, the downsides. And I wonder, uh, do you feel that there are any downsides to uh, to making a sort of blanket statement about, uh, about either um, weighing oneself every day or or being very, you know, calorie county uh, as one goes about one's uh, with every meal that that one has. Yeah, I mean, I, get, I mean, we get asked that question quite a bit, really, and particularly in relation to eating disorders. So the question we get asked is, you know, encouraging people to weigh themselves regularly will that lead to um, people uh, developing eating disorders? And actually, there's no evidence that weighing yourself regularly leads to eating disorders. So I think we can be fairly confident about that, as the evidence um, currently. Um, stands. But of course, with any intervention, there may well be side effects. You know, we're not suggesting that every intervention that we offer to the public has no side effects. I mean, drugs is a perfect example of that. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't try and find new ways to help the public improve their health. Thank you. Uh, Eric, anything to add there? I, and for me, the, the kind of the take home message from our research isn't about you know, go away and start being a calorie counter. It's that um, the problem's the food. It's not the people. There are just there's just too many calories in the products that were being um, sold. And you know, an adverse side effect of uh, having to weigh yourself regularly, having to count calories, is that neither of them are very much fun. And where we have busy lives, we have other things to do. So if we could change the environment in a way that meant that we were consuming less calories um, by default, then that would feel like a, a much healthier and happier intervention. And of course, that's not as easy to achieve, but it doesn't mean um, that it's something that we shouldn't be trying to push for and trying to make happen. You've been listening to Frances Mason and Amanda Farley from the University of Birmingham and Eric Robinson from the University of Liverpool. There are two research articles, Effectiveness of a Brief Behavioural Intervention to Prevent Weight Gain Over the Christmas Holiday Period, a Randomised Control Trial, and Overeating at Major UK Restaurant Chains, are now available on bmj.com. That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with Mother's experiences of working in medicine. We'll also be trying to decipher death certificates from the 17th century. Keep an ear out for those. Until then, enjoy your Christmas edition of the BMJ. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.